You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So our crown forklift finally arrived. We got the replacement battery we needed. It got delivered with the wrong voltage charger. They supplied no. a four. This, this is a used, right? Yes. This is a used forklift. Okay. Used forklift, but a new battery, a refurbished forklift, a new battery, and a new charger pack. And somebody got their wires crossed and loaded the wrong charger on the truck. And so they showed up with a 480 volt charger, which we don't have 480 in the building. We have 208. And so the sales guy from Crown has to make a second trip down here and mm. pop that out for us. Yeah. So tell me about the forklift. It's a ride on. It's not a walk behind, right? It's a stand up where you're turned sideways. You're 90 degrees to the forks. Mm -hmm. The controls are very kind of counterintuitive. There's a bit of a learning curve. It's, it's kind of like a joystick and a scroll wheel. The things I like about it is your positioning in relation to the forks is pretty good. You're pretty close and you're high. So you can see the forks in the work pretty easily. It also means when you are reversing away from a pallet rack, you're looking to your left. You're not looking behind you. And so the typical difficulty of not having great visibility behind you when you're backing up in a fork truck kind of goes away. You still have a dead space behind you, but it's not the reverse direction the forklift moves in. So I like that. It has two pressure pads in the floor that you have to be standing on. And it's relatively sensitive. If you kind of cock your hip and put most of your weight on one foot, it can sometimes trip out and not want to let you move the thing around. Yeah. But it's super quiet. It's compact. It lifts everything we need to lift. It definitely, we're going to have to redo the certification for everybody in the shop who's, who was previously certified on our existing fork truck because the controls are so different that it is not just yeah, hop on here, turn it on and go. It's kind of like flying a helicopter. You've got two control things you're working at the same time, whereas there's no pedals. Your feet are only on the pressure switches to let the machine know that you're in position. Mm -hmm. And so you're doing all of your driving, steering, and fork manipulation with your hands. So there's a little more task saturation for hand stuff, but I yeah. think it's going to be a good move for us. That we're going to list our, our Datsun LP fork truck on Craigslist. Yeah. So this forklift, you probably, you're not lifting heavy stuff, are you? No, we're rarely lifting anything over 1800 pounds. Yeah. Okay. All right. Most of our pallets of plastic are the heaviest thing we consistently receive in. And those are 16, 1700 pounds. Do those just come in on the back of a truck or something? Yeah. They just Freight. come in, in a semi. Yeah. We get those on four by four pallets, banded and strapped and shrink wrapped down. Mm -hmm. They're pretty yeah. easy. My dad told me a story years ago when he first started his precision sheet metal business and he would buy from the local material suppliers and they would pull up on a flatbed. There's your order and here's your 15 sheets of 18 gauge cold rolled steel. And he would hand unload them. They would snap the banding, pull them off, walk them into the shop. And my dad tells the story that he was pretty aggressive back then. It didn't take crap from anyone. And the driver said, Hey man, I think you could really benefit from a forklift. And my dad just like unloaded on, don't you tell me how to do this, daddy. And the guy went, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I'm just saying that you could take all of these off and store them in under three minutes. When I show up, I don't mind helping you. I know that you're just building your business, but we just spent about 20 minutes on average trying yeah. to unload this. You could get that time back if you just got a forklift and 
but you wouldn't be a sword. It's just lots of benefits. My dad's like, oh, okay. And he got a used Clark forklift, which I now own. Like it is, it has been a workhorse in the Pearson family for decades and decades. It's older than me. It's yeah, it's old. I don't know the year, but I know it's earlier than uh, when I was born. And I just think of all the history that forklift has seen, and it still runs just a propane. I think you got to dump like, oh, I don't know, a quart of hydraulic fluid and all these other fluids in it every six months, but Hey, it does the job. So I appreciate forklifts and just how people just have often overlooked them in the scope of humanity, how much work hydraulic cylinders have actually done. Yeah. The, our last forklift, well, I've got it about, yeah, it's almost two years ago. It's an electric, it's a Toyota. I bought it cause it's a Toyota. Anyone that has lean or invented lean, the Toyota production system, I'm going to probably buy that. And it's been great. And it was used. And I was actually surprised to, to see an outboard charger. I didn't know that existed because my previous crown had an onboard charger, the walk behind. And it was just, you plug it into 110 and 12 hours later, it topped off the, the four batteries, the four, six volt batteries. So hmm. yeah, I'm amazed at like the, the forklift technology over the years. Yeah. In this case for us, it's an investment for the quality of life of the employees who are in the assembly and warehouse space to just not have the fumes. Absolutely. To not have the noise, to not have the smell. Yeah. And certainly we will use it more often because we deliberately try not to use the LP forklift during the day when everybody's here. If we have things we need to move around, we try to move them after hours so that we're not gassing everybody out. Yeah. And we have couple different pallet jacks. We have a little small Japanese lift jack as well. And all those are useful, but there's just a lot of times when one person can get a lot more work done more quickly and more safely if they've got a fork truck for it. Yeah, absolutely. So, Hey, so you had mentioned a macro in a previous episode, some type of macro, gosh, I wrote a note as a macro hack, but it's not a hack. It's a strategy of when you're using your R machine yeah. of it. It, depending on the pallet, it reads what side of the door is and then assigns work orders. I guess this would be the work offset to it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So my guy, Alex, he's our, our mill lead. He listened to that. He's like, oh man, we should do that. Cause we have the horizontal. It's the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And so now he's just to get started. He was writing a program for each one of our, remember we have a pallet pool. There's seven pallets. Yep. And so he would write a program for a rotovice on each of those pallets and then assign a different offset. But now he says, oh, after listening to the podcast, all I do is I write one program and instead of G154P, because remember of the Haas machines, 154 through what, 159, that's your standard, like decades old list of offsets. And then it goes to P it's G154P. And then you have like endless numbers. Yep. So we assigned row devices to each one of those. So now in his one program, he does. Fusion doesn't output it because of the post isn't, it's not yet there, but it's just an easy, I think it's a control page, which is a find and replace. So he'll just put in G154 P and then something that he assigned in fusion. And then it goes through and it goes G154 P and then it enters that macro that is associated with that specific palette. And he said, it's a game changer. So thank you, Andrew. Awesome. And so we got a lot of values. on our machines, we're not moving pallets around. So we just have a turntable and it's like either table one's in or table two is in. So the macro setup there is fairly simple for me to wrap my head around. How does your horizontal actually track which pallet is in play? 
there's a macro table that will say current pallet in the machine. I'm sure like every station it assigns like, Hey, this parking station number four has pallet number macro number here. That gotcha. type of and does the pallet pool always put pallets back in the spot they came from? Or this is the classic, like on a brother CNC machine with the wheel style ATC, mm-hmm. every tool always goes back to the same pot it came out of. That's right. Mm-hmm. But on a lot of anything with a swing arm changer, it's going back. It's just getting swapped in position with yes. something else. Yeah. That, yeah. Same concept. So yours would be like an umbrella style tool changer, same yeah. pocket, same tool. Yep. Yeah. These would be side mount tool changers. Yeah. It's, it's that type of thing. So it's got to track positions of pallets all the time. Yeah. The way that we do it is I have a single, just a program, a sub program written that contains all that macro stuff. And I insert it as a pass through NC code mm-hmm. in cam. So it's there in the setup. So I can't, I, I don't want to do any editing in notepad or visual studio code. I don't want to be monkeying around with the G code after I post it. I always want the thing that I post to be exactly what goes to the machine. Yep. And that's both for the, the avoidance of dumb fat fingering errors, which are always a risk. And also it reduces the amount of friction for me to go back and make changes to things. Because if I might have changes, a smattering of manual edits all through the program, making sure that I don't accidentally delete that program, accidentally overwrite that program, misplace it, misnumber it, anything yep, is way, way harder. The risk is way higher and the consequences are much worse than if I go, okay, just yeah, take every single program on that CNC machine's control and just throw them all away. Just throw them all away. Mm -hmm. And I can repost those fresh and they'll be good to go. Yeah. We opt to do that most of the time. There's a few exceptions. Like, so on our big MX machine or nine axis multi uh, in Milturn. Yeah. There's just, we don't, Fusion's just not advanced enough, or at least the post processors to do all that, like post and load and go. It doesn't do that. But on all the mills and the other lathes, it does with the exception of a pallet pool, because that is the one new piece of equipment that has additional complexity. But I know that there's someone out there that we could probably contact and just say, Hey, we just want it to post a number. And whenever we post this number or, or set that number in fusion, it instead puts in the macro number for that palette. Yeah. I think that would be the workaround, but incremental improvement. We're not there yet. Yeah. It's also possible on the brothers to set up a, a custom GRM code. And mm-hmm. you can use subfolders on your machine control to just put in a single M code, G code, custom G code, sorry, that mm-hmm. then calls the subroutine. So you don't even need to use the exact same G65P7000, whatever. You yep. can just put in one that you've already linked and then it's super, super easy and clean to put that in. Yeah. Um, aliasing. Do they call it aliasing? G uh, Some people call it that. that. That's the concept. Yeah. Okay. And for me, the innovation that made the macro really sweet was that we have some, we have three R series machines and two S series machines. And so I had to write the the macro and monkey around with it such that I could build that subroutine call into the post. And so for a while I was putting it in as an NC code and now it just automatically goes in at the top of our post in every file, but figuring out how to do it so that if it was an R-series machine, it will run properly. And if it's an S-series machine that doesn't have that rotary table, 
that it just skips a portion of the code and runs on the original work coordinate that was set rather than editing it, updating it, changing it, whatever. Once I got that to work, because what I'd had to do before was always put it in on R series machines and then make sure to leave it out on the S series machines. Otherwise it would cause an error because mm -hmm. it's like, there's no value here. We can't do this. Mm -hmm. But yeah, for us being able to cut the number of programs in half and not have to post a table one and then a table two version of the program, it made the machine directory way less cluttered. Mm -hmm. It made the risk of making a partial update, but not rolling it out across both tables and then suddenly having variations across a batch made that risk way lower. And it just made me way less frustrated about having to make edits. Anytime you have to make edits and you've got two parallel programs that you have to edit, it, it is twice the work. It's a pain yeah. in the neck. Yeah, sure is. And so that was a huge benefit for us. But even there, when we've got twin R series machines, making sure our programs are synced up between them is itself its own process. And we actually have, we've, those two machines have started to diverge a little bit in the sense that a lot of our most standard production programs are identical across them, but we have some tools that are unique to mil five and some tools that are unique to mil four. And so there are some OEM jobs that only run on mil five and others that only run on mil four. And right now tracking which machine has the right drill bit or that right custom end mill to do this or that part, that's being done completely manually. Yeah. I was thinking of all the automation that exists in our lives. And I had this thing recently, I bought a new phone and at checkout, the math was so convoluted and complex because of all these discounts and this deal and that deal, this black Friday, this. So I took a screenshot, keep in mind, it's just a screenshot. This is not a copy paste, just a screenshot. And I pasted it in chat GPT, which is their image analysis. It's called Dolly. Yeah. Yeah. D-A-L-L hyphen E. And I said, does this math look right? It was so, it just, it continues to blow me away because it says, yes. And they have these, they totaled this up. And then, then I went a step further and I said, there's discounts on the left. There are two columns, parallel columns. There's discounts on the left and there's list prices on the right. Give me the total of all the prices on the right. And it did give me the discounts left. Okay. And then now I can decipher the grand totals down at the bottom because they are completely out of order. And I've just continually amazed at like how chat GPT is technically very, very complicated in the back end, but it spits out relatively easy data that we can digest. Whereas what you and I are doing, we're creating a lot of complexity so that it spits out again, very easy workflow. And it's like, we are our own chat GPTs. We just got to figure it out because it just doesn't exist. Kind of a deep mental dive right there. How about a lathe update? Yes, please. I'm punting. I am postponing the decision on a lathe. Okay. And the reason is just, we're only a few weeks away from the end of the year. I got a lot of other stuff to keep track of at this point, trying to, even though generally at the end of the year, prices are good because distributors are trying to unload machines, get them off their floor. The complication of getting a new machine, getting it in, getting it all installed and set up and functional can be really, really stressful. And at this point, there's enough considerations still to make that getting into the wrong machine, because I was in a hurry to get into some machine mm -hmm. in December, I would end up kicking myself in January going, oh, I didn't do this or I didn't know that. But it has been fascinating and I'm still continuing to do research. There's 
cool options from Nakamura and Sugami. There's cool stuff from Doosan. There's cool stuff from Mazak. There's cool stuff from Okuma. There's just a bunch of neat machines in these categories. The other thing we're working on is we're considering doing more of the sort of 3PL, third-party logistics piece, and potentially considering taking on some clients who we would at least initially only be doing fulfillment for, who we would not be manufacturing for. And that's a new model that we haven't really tried before. We're investigating it because in a lot of cases, small shops that are good at manufacturing aren't always that good. Like once the parts are done, it feels like the job is over, but the actual process of managing that inventory well, getting it retail packaged and shipped quickly and having a good, robust process for dealing with shipping carriers and all that stuff to make sure that customers get their stuff on time in the way they want is stuff that a lot of machinists don't actually like to do. Yeah. I don't particularly like to do it, but we've developed more and more of a system around doing that that's working well for us. and realizing that other small shops that do their own manufacturing could potentially benefit from using us to handle inventory and handle all that shipping stuff Mm -hmm. is an interesting, it's an interesting observation to realize it could actually be attractive to shops that have their own manufacturing because my default would be to think, Hey, if I could make it myself, of course, I'm going to ship it from my own facility because why would I ever stretch that out and complicate it and add a leg to that relay. But there is a real value to sticking to core competencies. And some shops just don't want to get really good at shipping. It's far enough outside their lane that they don't like it. It doesn't interest them. And so we're looking at doing some of that and whether or not we can find a way to make that profitable for us and a significant enough value to the customer to make it worth pursuing is still a little bit ambiguous Mm -hmm. because normally when we do manufacturing and fulfillment, we're not doing a really granular breakout of this is the cost of materials and this is the cost of manufacturing and this is the ongoing inventory charge and this is the pick, pack, and ship charge. We're just agreeing on a here's the whole number For every unit of this thing that we make and package and ship for you, you pay us this. Mm -hmm. And that way, it gives us more flexibility to build future efficiencies. But for yourself? Yeah. Like, well, if, if we say, okay, well, if we invest money to find a better, more economical way to manufacture the thing, either we invest in new tooling and that cuts our cycle time down, or we invest in denser work holding and that gives us more walk away time. We we just find efficiencies in the process. Those efficiencies are ours to keep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the price that we agreed upon, okay, it's this much to have it manufactured and shipped. This is the whole deal all in cost. That makes it nice for us because we're not having to consistently re-up those numbers and explain the exact breakdown of everything. Yeah. I've given that a lot of thought on both sides. Okay, so one high volume, easy to ship thing that we sell is our vacuum gasket. We sell vacuum systems and we sell the gasket. It's like printers and ink cartridges, right? Yep. But there's a lot of third-party vacuum systems, especially on the woodworking side of it, where there's this, like, we have a proprietary blend for our vacuum gasketing. It's not anything that you can buy at McMaster, no big box store. And so we do really well. I thought your Pearson stuff is carried by McMaster. I'm pretty sure I've seen it on there. (laughs) 
No, it is not. I've actually, every few years I buy it just to make sure that we're not missing something. There's not a something better. They have stuff. It's like, I don't know if they brand it as vacuum gasketing. I haven't looked this year, but it's terrible. It, there's compression set, which is when you squash something, how long yep. does it take to go back to, to recover. its regular shape? Yeah, to recover. There's that. There's oil, chemical, all that, all those resistances that we build into our formula. But anyways, I digress. So we have, we do a lot of volume. And so I've thought, would it be advantageous to have an East coast shipping facility or something yep. like that? So what does that do for the customer? Well, they pay slightly less in shipping if they're shipping to buy anywhere along the Eastern seaboard. Yep. It costs us a whole lot more to actually, if we had a second location to staff it, I think the big and possibly long-term strategy is we would have an East coast office in an income tax-free state. That's why I've looked at Tennessee, Florida. Those are the two on the East coast that I've been to Texas, but I've already lived there. Um, you know, uh, and then, Tennessee uh, is not on the East coast, Jay. It's e uh, Eastern time zone. Oh yeah. Okay. In, in yeah. that case. Yeah. You've got all yeah, the Midwest not, to work with. Right. Yeah. And look, Florida I know is, guy in Indiana who does fulfillment. Really? Okay. <laughs> Give me his name. I'd love to do a podcast with him. <laughs> Anyway, so, so Florida looking at like, like a Jacksonville. So it's literally yep. on the East coast, but not a great location just for the mere fact of like weather and the, we don't really have weather related shutdowns here in Southern California. So I'm thinking, what are all the factors? Would I establish residency? There's a long-term strategy there, but at the end of the day, it's like for us, I'd much rather keep things simple under one roof and just subsidize the cost of shipping so that someone that would have paid $12 to get a package to them pays $10. Like that's worth it to me in the long run, the $2 per package, it'll be fine. I could probably even call a carrier and negotiate a better rate before I start a second location. So there's a lot of complexity to adding like a second location to create better service that has ultimately no benefit, no perceived benefit to the customer. Yeah. And it's going to be a lot of pain for myself. Now on the flip side. We have a, okay, so I'll quick plug for missed away, missed collectors. We have probably a dozen. There's one on every machine and some above non-machines like our grinder, for example. I've actually just but, been looking at those. That's on my list of end of year equipment to spend money on. Yeah, they're great. They're, I think they're priced reasonably. They're pricey, but you want good stuff, you pay for it. So I like the guy. I think his name is Paul. We've been, gosh, I think we've been in had a relationship, a business relationship for over 10 years. I say, hey, Paul, I would love to buy some of these. Freight kills me. Can I be like kind of a mini distributor here on the West Coast and buy that? Like go around to a bunch of shops saying, hey, I'm going to buy these. Do you want to split freight? And I've gotten a handful, three or four, where we buy like a dozen at a time and pay 600 bucks or something like that. Yep. And we split it 12 ways. So that worked out. But so I thought, let's, wh what could we do? What could Paul and I do where we even listed on our website and if he gets a call or an order in a neighboring city, just let us know, we'll ship it or we'll deliver it to them for a fee. The customer is going to be happy because they're not paying freight yep. and we get to skim a little bit off that sale as a distributor. Now they, they have the same model as us. They only sell direct, but it is like it, it, he's in upstate New York or Southern California. That's a, that's about a hundred percent across the country. What could we do there? But I keep coming back to the fact that it has to be something small. Miscollectors are large. They take up a lot of space. 
in the same volume of one mist collector, I could probably stock a thousand end mill boxes, that type of thing. So I don't know. I've been given that a lot of thought over the years. I'm not yet to the point of making a decision, but it's an interesting thought experiment. So just FYI, if you search gasket cord on McMaster car, Pearson does show up the category, the column is labeled for vacuum system. And then there's a second line below it that says manufacturer. So mm -hmm. it looks like when you're just glancing at it, it looks like Pearson is listed as the manufacturer for one of their gasketed cord products. Yeah. I don't think that's our gasket though. That's the problem. <laughs> they yeah. list us as a manufacturer, like this will work with these systems, but that is right. not our gasket. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. But yeah, with the lathe decision off the timetable for the end of this year, looking at other things like we're looking at putting coolant uh, CTS on our R650 because it's CTS prepped. We don't have the high pressure pumps and all that stuff. Looking at doing that, looking at adding a mist collector to one of our S machines and one of our R machines. And there's just a lot of things that at the end of the year, your accountant's like, hey, you do have some margin to spend some money here. We could use a few more expense lines. If there are things you've been thinking about getting and your option is buy them in January or February or buy them in December and you can afford to buy them now, let's get them on the books this year. Mm -hmm. The trade-off is I'm not trying to find things to just throw money at because the tax benefit of expensing something is not significant enough that buying things you don't actually need is worth doing just for the tax incentive. And so finding a balance of what things can we add to our machines? Do we need more tool holders? Do we need any extra work holding? Do we need anything else like that we will use and investing in it? It can start to feel a little bit crazy at the end of the year. I always, no matter when I start thinking about this stuff, I always feel like I'm behind the ball. And I really should, at the middle of the year, start an end of year list, which is all the adjacent but not urgent upgrades or investments that we could conceivably make as money and tax liability position allows. Because of course, anytime I can give less money to the government, yeah. legitimately, I'm always interested in giving more money to my employees and in reinvesting more money into my company rather than just cutting a check and sending it off to the Fed. Mm -hmm. But the more time pressure I end up under, the poorer my decision-making is going to be in that regard, the more likely I'm going to misallocate that capital, invest in things that are not going to have a substantial ROI, or potentially in an effort to maximize my expenses, dip too deep and leave myself with not enough cushion for some unforeseen events that happen shortly after that. And all of a sudden, I spent my safety net in an effort to get a little bit more tax benefit. And instead I end up crashing into a wall. I'm very leery of the higher pressure sales tactics that you get in the manufacturing space from everybody mm -hmm. at the end of the year. It's like, oh, we got great deals on this. We got one of these, this, we're allowed to cut prices like crazy. And also I'm like, you know what? I, it's the exact same thing that happens with Black Friday. So. I have not gone out to a physical store on Black Friday in years. Mm -hmm. It's probably been a decade. Like, why would you put yourself through that? 
Well, I know people who do it for fun. It's like a family <laughs> out and they get dressed up, they chug a bunch of coffee and they go out at four o'clock in the morning. And, they, and if you're going out with a specific list of things, like if some local store to you has a doorbuster deal that you actually want, uh-huh. and it's not just them giving away garbage they don't want on the shelf anymore. I could see that there's some fun, but like yeah. you will never ever see me at a Walmart at 7 a.m. on Black Friday. Yeah, yeah. I just, yeah, there's I think nothing I need there. So there's a parallel there. So you touch on something. You would do that if you were wanted to hang out with a buddy or something or do something fun like for the experience. But if your point is to save money, it's probably the wrong thing to do because you're going to get into a shoving match. You're going to be on YouTube, all that type of stuff. And the same thing applies to end of year business purchases. We're coming up while we're in December. So you buy something at the end of the year, just so that you don't give it to uncle Sam, which is again, a terrible business strategy. I've done it, but it, you never get ahead of it. You're spending money and you're getting the section 179, the full expense, but you only put 10% down. It's a typical machine deal. Yep. And then you spend the next, if you put it on a loan, you spend the next few years paying for it. You, you end up paying and it takes your cash flow away in future years so that you could save tax money. And especially when you don't need that piece of equipment. That's just a terrible Certainly strategy. Buying anything you don't need for tax reasons mm-hmm. is counterproductive. If I had so much money that I just couldn't figure out where to put it, mm-hmm. then I would probably think about this question very differently, but I'm not in an industry and I'm not a size of company that has millions of dollars that needs to get spent at the end of the year. Right. Like on a budget line, you're saying, Hey, that's your, you got money left over. Yeah. Like a lot of big companies, they have individual department budgets and the, basically the way the budget works, it's use it or lose it. Mm -hmm. And if you consistently don't spend all your budget, they will downsize your budget. It's like, well, if you had an extra half million dollars that you didn't spend, then it doesn't need to be there next year. And so everybody in order to keep their options open, always wants to spend all the way to the wall. Mm -hmm. Any dollar that was budgeted, they want to make sure to spend it. And that just, that's gross. It, one of the. I think that by the way, really quick, I think that's such terrible business practice. I do not get that. So you punish people for uh, doing well in managing their budget that often, if it doesn't roll over, that's just horrible management. And I know it's taught at all levels of education, which is probably the problem. Sock that money away. I, I don't get it. We don't operate like that here. We don't do budgets. We go on an as needed basis and then we'll find the money. But yeah, it's just, yeah. But that, that's small business practice. I wonder if budgets would, would, could afford to be its whole own topic of a podcast episode or at least a significant chunk of one episode. I don't want to get too deep into budgets right now. I functionally do an as needed basis as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a general idea of how much I'm expecting to spend, mm-hmm. but I'm not at the beginning of the year. I'm not saying we're going to spend $37,000 in marketing this year because most of the time those numbers are just made up. Yeah, of course they're fictional. I would say that like, we're okay. So you and I are both practitioners of lean. We probably often have the mindset of fix what bugs you. And so every year I'm looking at components that we make going, which ones are difficult to make? What technology is out there that could make us more? Well, I talked in a recent talk about peace, the pursuit of peace in the workplace. What piece of equipment would give us more peace when we make this? It's higher quality. 
it's the faster throughput, easier setup, all the above. Yeah. There, there we go. There's a piece of equipment. These are the components. How much does it cost? Let's make a goal towards that. That's how we operate. But you know, if we did ever have a guest on this podcast, I would want like someone to come and explain budgets to us because it still doesn't make, it, it sounds like something crazy that I'm about to say, but budgeting just doesn't make sense. It's like having like, like goals in business is another thing that I think is foolish. Yeah. You want to have like a direction and you want to have principles, but goals, like stuff changes. Like a few podcasts ago, we were talking about business plans, how I found my old one when I wrote, when I was like 19 ridiculous. A 19, 20, 25 year old doesn't know what's going to happen at 30, 35, 40. It's preposterous to me. So maybe someone could explain it. I think that would bring more value to that, but I find no value in, in those types of things. I wanted to circle back actually just for a second to miss collectors. Cause I just dug up my spreadsheet. We were putting together quotes and comparing some options from miss buster Royal and Mistway, mm-hmm. And from Mistway, we were looking at the MA-1000 to put on our yeah. R650 or the MA-400 to put on our smaller S-series machine. Don't they have a 700? They might. I think that's what we have. Well, there was only one size when I started buying them years ago. We just standardized. Gotcha. But your experience with those has been good. Maintenance is pretty easy. The filters are consumables. They are. So they're five-stage filtration. So you have like the metal double grate. You have, I feel like a nylon finder mesh, like a blue nylon. You have, gosh, I can't remember the third one, but the four and five are a HEPA filter and an activated charcoal screen filter. So it actually kind of purifies the air. I would not say it purifies the air, but it traps a lot of stuff. No, they are consumables. At least the last two are the nylon mesh screen. You can wash out, you can soak the two baffles, metal baffles, those you can soak out in the sink. But really the only piece, if I were to give any feedback to Mist Away is that the ceiling around the filters needs to be better. So when we get a new filter and the first thing we do is we put the peel and stick weather stripping on the back side and the top, there, there needs to be better ceiling along the top. You put the five filters in like birthday cake style and it's got double arm clamps that come down and they compress them. But we like, I've looked up when a, a sunbeam is shining through the skylight and you see that out the exhaust, it looks like a little bit of smoke. That's the only time you could perceive it. And we go, oh, filters are clogged. The air is blowing around the perimeter. And ever since we've done that, then it's got a filter gauge on it that once you do that, then it shows that it needs to be cleaned. But no, those last two, well, actually the HEPA, when that gets moisture on it, you're not going to pull air through it. Yeah. That's the big one. It loads up pretty fast once it gets moist. Pretty much. Yep. Could you shoot a quick video on those little hacks and improvements you make to that? I'd be very curious to see exactly how you're doing them. Sure. Yep. Great. Yeah. Great. And before that, we were just talking a minute ago about budgets, end of year stuff. I understand, I think the sort of department budget, spend it or lose it approach, it it offends me. On some level, I like that, but I've also not, I've not had to work in an organization where multiple departments are competing against each other for access to budgetary funds. Yeah. And so the idea that somebody else will gobble up some of your pie next year, if you don't prove you can eat it all, 
Mm-hmm. And certainly for us, if we manage to find a way to do something with less money spent, that's a net savings, but we're one team. Our whole company is one team. Mm-hmm. So we're saving it from ourselves for ourselves. And I could easily see in a bigger company that you set an aggressive budget based on a desire for expansion and growth and other things. And the department might not achieve that because they didn't actually do the work that would have resulted in that money needing to get spent. So it's not that coming in under budget is necessarily always a sign of innovation and frugality and finding better ways to do the stuff. It might just be you were given a fuel allowance and you're returning with half a tank because you didn't drive the whole delivery route. Mm -hmm. Maybe you just didn't do all the work. So I could see a case where there could be some reason for deviating high or low from your budget, having repercussions. But certainly it can motivate a kind of, well, I don't know, it's the end of the year, throw money at the wall. Let's let's use that delivery driver analogy. So he goes, he gets back to the hub and says, I spent half my tank because I found a better way of getting around town then he's punished for that. And I think when it comes down to budgeting, use it or lose it, it doesn't reward efficiency. It also doesn't reward strategy either. That's my problem. So if you, if I told my guys, you have to spend this or you lose it, they're just going to buy stuff they don't need. And then in two years or two and a half years, there's a big purchase we want to make, but we don't have the financial resources to go buy that piece of equipment because we spent the last two years buying dumb stuff at the end of the year that we didn't need for the sake of spending money. That's the offensive part on my end. So that connects back to Black Friday, which is if you go out on Black Friday with the goal of spending a bunch of money, you will definitely accomplish that goal. That's right. Do you need everything you purchased? Questionable. So what I did is, I think it was last year, I ended up buying something I really don't pay that much attention to Black Friday as a consumer. I'm not really looking through sales catalogs. I'm not, I unsubscribe from newsletters. I'm a zero inboxer. I don't see a lot of other companies' Black Friday promotions. But last year I bought something like 10 days before Black Friday. And then Black Friday rolled around and they put that thing on sale. And I'm like, oh, that was dumb. I could have waited 10 days to buy that and save myself 150 bucks. But in the grand scheme of things, I don't care that much. That's a great attitude. Plus you had the utility of that device earlier. Yeah. Now I may or may not have done anything useful with it in in that 10 days. It's not as though I had work waiting to go out the door that I was going to invoice instantly the second that thing arrived. And every day that I was waiting for the sale, there was the opportunity cost. There are plenty of people who have a thing, have a justifiable, plausible use for it, and will wait six months to buy it to save 30 bucks. And that doesn't make any sense to me. If a thing isn't useful enough to be justifiable buying it now, I question whether or not it's justifiable to buy it at all. And if a thing clearly is justified to buy, then the difference between buying it now and buying it later Mm -hmm. would have to have a significant financial delta in order to be remotely important to me. That takes me back. I mentioned that customer that was going to wait a year for the next Rotovice IMTS sale. So I realized something kind of thinking through that. Whenever I have a want 
in life, that's not a need. It's a want. I will wait as a personal discipline and I will reward that waiting by waiting until a black Friday or, or something like that. Like I just, I bought a phone on black Friday, yeah. saved like 900 bucks. It's amazing. Yeah. Is my current phone adequate? Yes. Battery's not getting great. I've had it three years. I'm going to treat myself to a new phone. But when there's things like n a new rotovice, it's a new capacity that someone could just run with and have like instant additional throughput. That I feel is never worth it. Like when I saw the MX, I went, wait a minute, we are making these one components where we rough turn up one, rough turn up two. We drill the face of it. We drill the perimeter holes, all that handling. And this machine will do that in one operation. Where do I sign? Please take my money. I don't care about a deal. We will make that up in additional freed up labor, which is again, our brains are our most valuable assets, not our bank accounts. Yep. And yeah, it would be that I, I realized that's one thing. If it's a want, I'll wait. It's a personal discipline. If I need it, it's the money is not an issue. Just use it. You will make more money by spending that money sooner. Now, there are a lot of things for me, Black Friday purchases would tend to be more non-business related things. Like if I was going to buy myself some new guitar cables or a particular effects pedal or something like that, those are the kind of things where I would say, okay, I'm, I want this thing and I'll wait for Black Friday to get it. Like I decided it's finally time to ditch this and that cable and finally upgrade to a nice set of Mogami Golds for this rig and just have some nice premium cables. Treat yourself. <laughs> Those things, if nothing's broken, I'll wait. That ability to delay gratification for a significant amount of time is a really important life skill. I don't want to be a person who the second I have an idea of something I could plausibly justify buying and using, I instantly run out and grab it. So I'm trying to go both faster and slower at the same time. Certain things that clear the hurdle, get them immediately. Other things that don't wait nearly indefinitely for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And where I think people struggle is if everything's kind of in the middle and some things that are relatively urgent or valuable get slow rolled and other things that are just for kicks get purchased, everything in the middle gets kind of muddied. So on Black Friday, I actually sat down and made a list. I had four companies I was trying, I was buying things from, and I did a little bit of shopping around in comparison. I was looking for consumer products, nothing that was super proprietary. I just wanted to see which of these companies that I've already bought stuff from has the best deal on this thing or that thing. And then I also bought some things on Black Friday at full price. I ordered some more stuff from FastCap and Paul Akers mm -hmm. sent out an email and, hey, we have a great deal on this and that. And it was all stuff that, of theirs that I didn't need. <laughs> it was all stuff associated with cabinet making and clamps and dust collection and things, none of which I was looking for. So I bought some more magnets and some other stuff that we use that FastCap makes. It was all full price. Mm -hmm. I didn't care. I happened to be on the FastCap website. I needed to buy some things. There was no point in waiting to see if they were going to change what was on sale on Friday or Saturday or Monday. It's like, no, mm -hmm. it, yeah, just buy it. I suppose it is a gradient because I wanted a second Bamboo Lab printer. I have one in my home that I was testing. Yes, it's great technology. We're going to implement it at the shop. And we have four printers here. We have two Prusa Minis, an Ender, and then my original Maker Gear M2. All great printers in their categories. And, but they're all for the most part, very slow with the exception of the maker gear M2, but it's literally 11 years old. That was my first 3d printer. And I just said, well, I would like to do this, but I'm going to go ahead and deploy patients. 
and I'm going to wait until Black Friday. And sure enough, the Black Friday, now everyone's doing Black Friday week. I'm not throwing criticism. We did a Black Friday sale because we've never done a Black Friday sale, but Mm -hmm. we said 10%. We'll just see what happens. For me, it's more of like data collection. Like what, what happens? How does the needle move when we do these types of things? Because you're essentially, it's like a trade show. You're competing with every other booth. Yeah. And that's kind of why we limited amount of attention for a limited window of time. Yes. Yeah. So for me, I'm like, I'm not sure it would be worth it. Well, I don't have all the data, so we're just going to try it 10%. We'll see what happens. I can't say it moves the needle much, but no, it was one of those things where, you know, oh, look at that black Friday week, bamboo labs saved a couple hundred bucks. Great bonus. And you know what I did, Andrew? I just spent the savings on more filament, which things I'll eventually need. I'm actually going to be after this podcast, sitting down and shopping for some more filament because Bamboo Labs has a great price on filament and we've had great results using their filaments in their printers. Oh yeah. But I bought a second X1 carbon just three or four weeks ago. Nice. And I looked at it, it's like, okay, well, I could wait till Black Friday. This might be on sale, but I have things I want to print on this machine right now. Yes. And for us having two X1Cs side by side, each with the four spool automatic feeder system on top. Mm-hmm. That allows us to have more colors on tap, to have different kinds of materials on tap. Like we've got some basic PLA, some PLA tough, and some stuff with carbon fiber shredded up in it. Mm-hmm. So that if we need to make something particularly tough, we don't have to go take the machine apart and swap this out. You just select which one you want and go for it. But the thing that I was finding, the reason I decided to just go ahead and pull the trigger on the second one right away was that several times in the previous week or two leading up to that, I'd wanted to print something and our one printer was tied up for the next mm-hmm. three hours. And I'm like, yep. ah. technological bottleneck. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it. it's just throughput. Yeah. And for us, even though we're not selling 3d printed parts and a lot of the time, both of our bamboo printers are sitting. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're both chugging along constantly, but if we've got multiple people in the shop who can be designing and printing things at any given time. Make the investment of making sure that each one of them has a lane open, a reserved mm-hmm. lane where right. you can show up at any point in the day and you need to print something. You've got a machine available to you. That is super valuable to us. Absolutely. Yep. I'd rather so, have excess capacity than bottlenecked. Capacity. Now that I'm talking about it, I'm thinking about buying a third one. <laughs> really? <laughs> and it's not because we often have three running, but just this past week, one of our AMS units I think they're called the AMS, the auto yeah. filament. Yeah, AMS. got all jammed up in one of the filaments. I think it wasn't Did one it of break? the Ambu labs, but we had a filament break in multiple places in the feeder system. And it yeah, it happened to me with a non-bamboo lab filament. It was a pain. Yeah, it was an older spool. We just junked it out, but it was a pain. And that machine was down for a day or two while we took the whole thing apart and got the little chunks of plastic out of it. And instantly that reduced us from two to one. We were right back to square one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I didn't love it. But certainly buying plenty of filament at Black Friday makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, it's along the same lines. We didn't understand why we would have customers that would buy a bunch of our vacuum starter packages and then come back and buy another vacuum power unit. And early on, I would call and say, hey, is everything okay? They're like, oh yeah, we just, we don't want to be down for maintenance. So we just pull out the VPU, put the new one in, keep running, and then we can slowly service the unit. Yep. And we go, have our oh, spares. Yeah, people do that. This is like eight, 10 years ago. Yeah, you do that. And so that would be one of those cases where it, it, you can afford to shut down a little bit of time. You're, you're giving up a little time, get the other one back on, 
And then you've got all this time to kind of troubleshoot. Uh, I think that's great. So we've done that with our shipping cell. We have, we've spent a lot of time optimizing our shipping workflow and the layout of the table and the technology that's there, the camera and the scale and the computer and, and the label printer and the document folder, and all that stuff. And once we got it worked out the way we wanted and it was functioning well, the immediate next thing we did was buy a duplicate of every piece of equipment on that table. Nice. Bought a spare scale, a spare folder. The, the label printer is almost, it's like 1800 bucks. We bought a spare one and just stuck it on the shelf because we knew that at no point did we want to be at the mercy of the supply chain for any of those things if we had a critical outage and our shipping station was down. Yeah. And so more than once we've had something get kind of wonky and we've just hot swapped it out and that buys us time to troubleshoot the one that's giving us an issue, whether it's a computer problem or a label feeding problem or whatever, we can say, okay, 15 minutes, we're going to pull this one out, put this one in, make sure it's all configured, run a few test orders through, make sure everything's good. And we're right back up and running. And then we're not under any time pressure to rush the fix. Yep. But for Black Friday this year, we actually took that entire second setup worth of equipment, put it on a mobile cart and built a second overflow system to be able to ship two lines in parallel. Mm -hmm. So we can just get more stuff out the door faster. And then when we're done, we can take it apart or just roll it away, stash it somewhere and not have to have it in our shipping area. Yeah. No, we're building out, actively building out, should be done in the next few weeks, our new assembly and fulfillment room. Same yep. thing, dual shipping lines. There's no need to get clogged up if the computer locks up or a printer won't connect, something like that. Yep. Maybe I'll post this on the Instagram. I made this like spooling wheel for our gasket. And once it proved that it worked, I just printed a whole nother set, assembled it. So if it ever broke, because 3D parts break, yep. just swap out the whole assembly instead of trying to fix it. 